tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrel pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing, man. Yeah, that's remarkable. Alex, I'd like to start the podcast by sharing uh, two pieces of critical information about one about each of your beloved hosts, dear listener. Um, the first one is that Alex has the novel coronavirus coursing through his body as we speak. I do. Not so novel anymore, but... <laughs> uh, this is your second time with it? First it confirmed is. time? First confirmed time. First tested positive. The first time was like when everyone had it, you know, you like in, in March 48. of 2020. Right, exactly. Right. Uh, how are you feeling? I'm feeling okay. Good excuse to just lie on the couch all weekend and watch Coco Goff and Medvedev and 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 be here with you, you my beloved Medvedev guy. I kind of am in the last couple of years. I, also, of, I think he's a fun like heel. You know, he leans into it, right? But like, not in too much of a self serious way. We're kind of all big Medvedev guys now that he's playing Djokovic. <laughs> yeah, well, in the final, exactly. Huh? Yeah, this is Medvedev the tennis podcast now. <laughs> Because you have been sick with COVID and because we obviously spend a lot of time together, I figured, given our five-hour car ride <laughs> right. five days ago, that I would also have COVID. But I, I don't, at least not yet. But because of that, I have spent the last couple of days, as you described, laying on the couch, watching Coco Goff, watching Medvedev, uh, and watching a lot of films. And so the second piece of inf critical information that you need to know about the two hosts of this podcast is about me, and it is that I just finished watching the film JFK. <laughs> like an hour before we started recording this podcast. So Alex's so your brain head is, is riddled, riddled with, with uh, COVID-19 brain fog, and mine is riddled with the truths that Oliver Stone has given our dear culture. So I think we're going to do a great episode. I think we are too. You're off in conspiracy land. You think there's a third shooter. I don't even know how that's possible. Um, Why stop at three? Exactly. There were grassy knolls all over the place, right? That if, wasn't the only one. There's buildings everywhere. If there's, if there's one thing that Major League Baseball has taught us is that there's a lot of conspiracies going on in the state of Texas. <laughs> if there's one thing. Another film that I watched this weekend, Alex, is the uh, movie called Air. Have you seen this movie? I have seen this movie, yeah. Uh, it chronicles the story of the Nike Corporation branding uh, Michael Jordan's shoe Air Jordan and recruiting him to come be the face of their basketball division. Uh, that is my ham-handed transition to talk about former Yankees pitcher, <laughs> former perfect game thrower, <laughs> David Wells and his opinions. We're doing a bad take dramatic reading. The first true one of these that we've done in, in quite a bit of time. It is, yeah. But he gave us such a a wealth of content that it it we would not be ourselves if we let this moment pass by without at least acknowledging it. Headline in the Athletic from Brendan Cootie: Yankees legend David Wells slams quote woke woke culture and rant against Nike, Bud Light, and MLB. Off to a great start. I just want to say hitting all all playing all the hits there in the headline just kind of getting it all in and what he was like they don't trot me out for very many events like this anymore so i kind of got every got to get everything i think out on the table i kind of feel like this is a man who understands search engine optimization <laughs> absolutely new york yankees legend david wells slammed the state of major league baseball while ripping nike and bud light for being quote woke we're in a different world 
We're in a different world, Wells said Saturday, which was Old Timers Day at Yankee Stadium. Very fitting. It sucks. That's why everyone should carry a gun. I'm missing a couple a couple steps of logic there. I think it makes perfect sense. You think it makes perfect Okay, great. Uh, you're on the record as saying that's why everybody should carry a gun because Nike and Bud Light are woke. As Wells spoke, he wore a piece of medical tape over the Nike swoosh on the chest of his Yankees jersey. He said that if he were playing today, he would have cut a hole into his jersey and worn it on the field like that rather than display Nike's logo on his body. I don't understand why he has to do the medical tape. Why couldn't he cut a hole in this jersey? Unclear. I hate Nike, he said. They're woke. So far, I'm not hearing a lot of justification. Right, a lot of substance to the criticism. It used to be that you have you had to flesh out your ideas. You know, like when John Rocker came out and basically did this rant in the 1990s, he explained what he thought. He didn't just say Queens is woke. Right. He went line by line of every group of marginalized <laughs> people and said why he didn't like and trust them. I'm just saying you should have to show your work a little bit, right? Okay, well, we'll see if he shows his work as we continue. Wells ripped companies that he feels dabble too much in social issues and politics. He referenced Bud Light, which used the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney in a commercial earlier this year, causing some conservatives to call for a boycott of the beer. Asked whether he would drink Bud Light again, Wells didn't need many words. Quote, nope. No thoughts. Not a single thought. All vibes. Uh, here's where it starts getting related to baseball. He just had to get the thoughts about Nike and Bud Light out of the way first. I guess because those are companies that Major League Baseball has a, a business relationship to. Sure, yeah. Do you think he thinks uh, Terra is too woke? I would like to see someone try and explain the blockchain to David Wells. <laughs> MLB's virtual ballpark is too woke. <laughs> I want to hear that rant. I, I, I would listen to that rant. I unironically would. Wells, who pitched 21 big league seasons, also defended general manager Brian Cashman recent topic of this podcast who's been under fire from fans this season as the Yankees sit in last place in the AL East it always seems that the general managers the managers and all of that are getting fired and getting blamed for it and it's the players fault if you're not doing the job out on the field and if I was a GM I would start sending a message I don't care who it was if he was in the stink hole pardon my French if you can say that now you can't say that now by the way (laughs) you can't say if he was in the stink hole I hate that but send that son of a gun to AAA or AA and send him a wake-up call. They did it to me. They did it to a lot of us back in the day. You've got to send a message. I don't care how much money you're making. Send him to AA. Which players on the Yankees do you think are uh, have the options to go to AA? <laughs> who, does, who does he think should go to AA? Once again, the new rules that have been instated by Major League Baseball limiting the amount of times that a player can be optioned to the minor leagues are, in fact, woke. This is the coddling of the American baseball player. I'm glad you said coddle because then David goes on to use that word. Send a message to them and let them go sit down there and think about it. That's what you have to do. I know. I think now they coddle them too much. They baby them. It's up to your peers to make you better. See, this is what I'm saying is that we could like do an effective job like they're just they have their list of buzzwords right coddle right woke stinkhole (laughs) he goes on to to recount a time where he pitched poorly and jorge posada slammed him against a pillar in the home clubhouse and uh how wells respected that because posada had said that he gave up and it pissed him off that he accused him of giving up on the game so so far we've learned Cut holes in your jerseys. 
That's Chris Sale coded. Don't drink Bud Light. Slam people against pillars at your workplace. Exactly. Or get slammed by get your ass kicked by your teammate. Right. It just depends on whether you feel like... <laughs> just depends on whether you're feeling like a top or a bottom that day. <laughs> uh, Wells wants a return to the 90s style of baseball, the article goes on to say. He said he had an issue with today's pitch clock because pitchers shouldn't need it in the first place. Gotta say, sounding a little bit like me there. <laughs> Here's where he loses me. Quote, this is analytics. Here, here is where he loses you. <laughs> yeah, everything else was okay. Quote, this is analytics. What is analytics? <laughs> what? The pitch clock is analytics? I'd like to hear him justify that opinion. They tell players certain things. To me personally, it's ruining the game because these guys don't have free will to be themselves and go out there and find their own identity. So now he wants to talk about identity. He's pro-identity now. Right. Because they're having an identity brought to them. There's a game plan. Our game plan was to go out there and win. How are we going to do it? The best nine guys are going to play. You need a fire lit under your butt sometimes. They don't do that. And it sucks. Pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> lot to chew on there. Uh, lot to chew on. Don't really know how to proceed from there. I, I have to ask, did someone ask him to talk about this? Like, was this unprompted? Or did, did someone go up and say... Boomer, how do you feel about the the state of woke culture in America today? Because <laughs> it feels <laughs> it feels important to me. If he went out and 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 did this rant on his own, which seems likely, uh, uh, I understand it. We don't we don't need to entertain the the ideas. I know we just did a whole segment um, reading word for word every single one of his quotes. True, we're part of the. Well, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's time to wheel him back into the closet. I, <laughs> I, I doubt that somebody specifically asked him about "quote unquote" woke culture. Maybe somebody asked him about why there was a piece of medical tape covering the Nike <laughs> right. logo on his jersey. That could have been it. Uh, but I feel like, at least to the baseball, the, to the extent of the baseball comments that he made, I do feel like the pitch clock, the the changes, the rule changes to the game have given everybody their bite at the apple for coming out and sharing their opinion on what baseball is like nowadays and what needs to change and whether you're a believer in the rule changes or whether you're somebody who thinks that the the game was ruined because of analytics and then Rob Manfred's hand was forced for the rule changes or whether you just think that they shouldn't have changed the sacred game like me. (laughs) Whether you're in that camp. It's something for everyone. You get to come out and you you get to have your at bat basically. To share your opinion on what Major League Baseball is like. Like in past years, this would have just sounded like old man yelling at cloud. Right. Now it sounds like old man yelling at cloud that everybody else is yelling at, frankly. Right. It sounds like the great equalizer is what you're saying. I think it does. And this is why on this podcast, you very bravely, you got out ahead of it and you said, I'm not talking about rule changes. And then you proceeded to just completely back down from that opinion and let us talk about rule changes whenever we wanted to. (laughs) Uh, my take on the rule changes is that we basically haven't talked about them. Is is basically that I think the baseball world hasn't touched them since like June. Yeah, not till David Wells came along. Yeah, exactly. And he wanted to share the truth that everybody was trying to keep under wraps. Maybe he's he the watched fish, JFK the fish swimming up, upstream. <laughs> he watched JFK before Old Timers Day. <laughs> Maybe I don't know. How are you feeling right now? Is this kind of the headspace that yours is in? No, no. 
my headspace right now is just about how much of a king Oliver Stone is. Right, right. Like, the only guy who could have made that movie, the only guy who could have made, credibly made the connections that he made in that film, gotten the budget and that entire cast to do that and say that those nonsense lines, which may or may not be true. I don't know. And he did it for the Hollywood studio system. A Hollywood studio made a movie accusing Lyndon B. Johnson of murdering JFK. You unironically could not make movies like this anymore. No, you couldn't make movies like that before then, or maybe during then. He's the only human being who could have done it. David Wells, however, is not the only human being who could have done this rant. You could replace him with literally anybody who has these opinions. So what you're saying is that Oliver Stone could slam the wokeification of America, but David Wells could not direct the magnum opus conspiracy piece of the 20th century? That's exactly precisely what I'm saying. Great. Uh, If Oliver Stone has opinions on the state of current baseball, I would listen to it. But David Wells, we're going to have to keep it moving, Doc. Yeah, we'll see you next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We are going to keep it moving. We have a lot to talk about this week, uh, including a debacle going on in in Washington, D.C. with the Nationals uh, and Steven Strasburg. A trial proceeding on a case that we have discussed in the past with regards to minor league baseball. And then, of course, we got to go back to the Nevada State Legislature. We just have to go back. You can't escape it. Alex is trapped there. Yep. Mentally, metaphysically trapped there. Yeah. (laughs) Dave Cavill stuck there physically. You stuck there metaphysically. We are going to talk about all of that. But before we do, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Baisley. And you are listening to tipping pitches. Thank you to this week's new patron, AK. Alex, are you excited to talk about the Lerner family? Are you excited to talk about them definitely knowing what they're doing and being able to handle their business? About definitely uh, not having any money in the bank right and and uh, checks bouncing these days yes i'm always i'm always reared and ready to go so two weeks ago we talked about uh, the nationals steven strasberg and how he had announced his retirement because he functionally can't pitch anymore he's in a lot of pain even in his day-to-day life his recovery has not been able to get him back on a major league mound nor a minor league mound or any really any mound uh and that how unfortunate of a story that was. I believe this was in the context of our 3F3 Down episode that we did when we came back from our two-week break. And we talked about that as a bummer. Uh, as one of those things where it, it, it seems like it was out of a lot of people's control. I don't think that there was any one, thi- one mistake that anyone made along the way to uh, set Steven Strasburg down this path. It was just a very unfortunate thing that happens to pitchers because um, I don't think our bodies are supposed to do the things that Steven Strasburg could do. And... Uh, I think everybody was summarily really bummed out about the situation, but uh, at least Steven Strasburg was going to have his number retired and he would get acknowledged by the Nationals and by baseball at large for everything that he contributed to that team, everything he contributed to like the wider baseball fandom. I, Michael Bauman wrote a great piece, a friend of the show, Michael Bauman wrote a great piece in Fangraphs about how he was the first kind of like modern mega prospect the first like consensus number one pitcher that everybody was like, this guy is going to be the thing. He might remember watching college highlights at SDSU of Steven Strasburg. Like, why would I care about that? But I was fired up about it. And I think the the takeaway from Bauman's piece was uh, largely right that he was like him and like super prospects like, like that. And later 
guys like Bryce Harper, um, and all, you know, all the way to the present where we have guys like Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz being just incredibly hyped and coming in and being good right away are a unifying type of thing for the game. And so we had all of that. We had that whole cycle of, of conversation around Strasburg, um, a, a bittersweet memorialization of his career. And then after all of that, the Nationals decided that they wanted to renege on what, on seemingly what their path was. Um, and they decided that they were not going to hold the reti- Jersey retirement ceremony for him in large part due to the, uh, the, a differing of opinion on how the finances would be held or would be handled for the rest of his contract. So according to uh, Brittany Giroli of The Athletic, quote, the Nationals approached Strasburg 35 about retiring earlier this summer. While no finances were implicitly discussed, Strasburg is on the injured list with nerve damage and his contract is fully guaranteed. The Nationals sources say wanted to change the original contract terms and work out a settlement. In a statement Friday, Nationals owner Mark Lerner said, while we have been following the process required by the collective bargaining agreement, behind-the-scenes preparations for a press conference had begun internally. However, no such event was ever confirmed by the team or promoted publicly. So basically, it leaked that they were going to have a jersey retirement ceremony for Steven Strasburg. And it was assumed, since his contract is fully guaranteed, that the Nationals would just pay him the rest of the contract. And the Lerners... I guess realizing that maybe the insurance on the contract was not going to pay it out in the way that they thought it would, decided to roll back that Jersey retirement ceremony, put out an official statement from the owner about how they weren't going to do it anymore, and say, we look forward to seeing Steven in spring training next year. A guy Uh, who has basically said that he can't ever pitch anymore. The Nationals are like, come on over to work if you want your money. That's where we're at right now. And seem happy burning that roster spot, right? If it means they can squeeze a few dollars out of him. I mean, it's just so... It's the bad faith negotiating that we've come to sort of expect from owners. And and this news breaking at the... Or at around the same time that we learned that more than a dozen national scouts were being laid off this uh, offseason from The Athletic and, and The Washington Post... It just, it really feels like penny pinching for the sake of it. I mean, just a couple of years ago, the learners and, and GM Mike Rizzo were talking a big game about how they were ready to build out their scouting department, right? And, and you know, we don't want to take away from this. We're in this rebuild mode. We really want to dedicate the resources necessary to this. And this all feels like a backtrack from a, a sort of measured retreat from actually saying, you know what, we're financially liquid, we can afford the cash here or there, let's really start building a a solid foundation for a future franchise. Which, hey, it's not the learner's future franchise, so why would you build that solid foundation, right? But the fact that ownership groups kind of have this lateral movement available to them that oftentimes ends up screwing over players and members of scouting teams, coaching teams that actually really feel the impact of these sorts of moves. I, it just, when when we were seeing this news trickle out about the Strasbourg conference being canceled, it felt all too familiar. You know, of oh, of course, they're going to cancel the contract and maybe try and keep him on as a special advisor, you know, and like renegotiate a salary that way, right? If they can 
they took a look at the books and said, hey, there might be another way out of this, which I guess I don't blame them for if their role is to look at the bottom line. But as a fan who maybe has watched this franchise and grown up with them and and celebrated Strasburg, um, or even just as a fan of of good baseball, of teams operating in good faith, this sort of thing is really disheartening to see. I think the phrase you used, good faith, is uh, a key one because I think a lot of people felt like, given how unfortunate Strasburg's like health, Strasburg's health has been, and how it's how much it's shortened what we thought was going to be a, a, a long and legendary career. You know, he's had health, his health problems over the years, and I remember he was one of those guys in that era of Tommy John recovery where it was like, okay, he's going to come back, but he's going to have a hard cap on his in- innings limit. Him and Matt yeah. Harvey were kind of in that era where there was just a, so much discourse around how much do innings matter versus how much does pitch count matter versus how much does velocity matter versus how much do stressful pitches matter versus we just didn't know quite as much about then. Right. And Strasburg was John like, recovery. all of it hurts. I, uh, all of the above hurts yes, my arm. <laughs> exactly. But he was able to come back and be healthy and effective enough to perform better than almost any pitcher in Major League history in their playoff run in 2019 and in in the World Series in particular where he took home the World Series MVP. And there was this feeling like, okay, you know, to use your phrase, good faith negotiation, it it felt like the Nationals were going to do the right thing. And I think that this is a particularly egregious example that frustrated people in a particularly powerful way because... If that's how an organization is going to treat a guy who who literally went out there and won the World Series for them, like without him, they don't win the World Series. If he just chooses not to go out there and be used on his throw day, him and Scherzer and Corbin, if they choose to not go out there and execute this plan that the Nationals had come up with because they basically had no bullpen and won a World Series against a great team, like then they don't have that World Series ring. And then all of everything that they did, letting you know multiple players walk and blowing it up and all that stuff, it seems eminently less worth it than, than it does if they have that, you know, flags fly forever. And to do this to this guy is just so, um, it's just like so naked and so, it just shows that such a, a flagrant lack of, like feel and competency, but also just a lack of care for how you're going to be perceived by the baseball world. And if they felt like it would have any repercussions, they wouldn't have handled it this way. They would just pay the contract out. But it it almost seems like beyond just wanting to pinch the pennies, it seems like they're trying to prove a point. Like they don't think that he should deserve this contract, basically, because he, even though it's fully guaranteed, they don't think that he should have it. And it's like what we've talked about so many times where we've created this consent manufacturing for teams and owners to come out here and be like, well, this player no longer deserves the contract that I agreed to give him because he hasn't, in my mind, reached these arbitrary standards that are not legally written into the contract. Like, Miguel Cabrera is not good anymore. Why am I paying him? Uh, Albert Pools is not good anymore. Why am I paying him? If you were worried about this, you shouldn't have signed the contract. That's what I said. Like, it, yeah, you did it. You know, you signed the contract. Now hold up your end of the bargain. It's literally legally the least you can do is yeah. to pay out the contract. You didn't. Right. Maybe you don't have to do this big grand jersey retirement ceremony. It was going to be a nice thing that you did it. Why did you ever approach him with the idea? Just, just eat the money. 
man. It's like I I don't know how much more plainly I can say it other than it's it's in a binding contract and you can't get out of it. So he's going to get the money either way. You right. could be the you could you could douse yourself in shame trying to get an insurance company to give him that money or you could just give him the money cuz you're not giving it to anyone else right now. You're not giving out big contracts that you can't afford as a major league team. I'm glad you brought up the the guaranteed nature of the contract because it's it's instances like these that show why MOB's union is so strong and why the labor landscape for players is at least when compared to other sports in a relatively good position, right? Because shit like this happens. You're doing something to your arm that like the human body was not designed to do and someone wants to pay you to do it. That's amazing. It should not fall on you if your body one day says, yeah, I literally can't do this anymore, right? You're entering into this agreement with the team. You both knew the terms at the start. It's kind of been like this for uh, decades that this whole thing has got. And we've seen, I feel like maybe in the last decade or so, more and more instances of teams trying to worm their way out of this, right? And say, hey, we'll bring you on in a different role. Um, We'll just keep paying you while you're injured, right? It's like, we're going to play a game of chicken with you and not give you this level of closure you want until we can come to an agreement that makes both of us happy, right? Which is not the way these contracts were ever designed to work. I think that that is a really important point because I, being committed to your values as a union in nearly all circumstances is a very important thing to do. And I don't mean being inflexible about what you think you believe in, but being committed to the values that bring uh, f- financial security to your members is very important. Um, I, I say that to say never backing down off this stuff is the reason that the contracts are still fully guaranteed. So when in 2003, Alex Rodriguez was traded, or 2004, I don't remember what year, was traded to the Boston Red Sox functionally. And he would have had to restructure his contract to take less money on his deal, a contract that he had already signed. That is against the union's principles. They said no. That's in the collective bargaining agreement that teams can't ask players to take less money than what is in their fully guaranteed contracts. And they would have to have an exception from the union leadership to be able to do that. And even though the player said that he wanted to do that, this is the guy making the most money in the league. This is the guy who signed the best contract. And if if he just says that he doesn't want to take that money anymore, then that gives a, a specific precedent for teams to come and say, hey, th- well, in this case, in this case, it wasn't fully guaranteed. In this case, we we had a reason to renegotiate it. Right. And- Occasionally, there are, there are times when market forces, uh, you know, necessitate us to re-examine the structure of the contract. Like, it's all there. Yeah. Yes. So conveniently that occasionally there are times that market forces step in. Well, yeah. actually, there's not. There's never a case in which a fully guaranteed contract should yield the player less money than was fully guaranteed. Never. Nope. Never. That's yeah. never a good thing. It's never a good thing. I, if you didn't, that, that's the thing. It's like, that's as a player, you are free to go above and beyond making the, the salary minimum. You know, you are free to sign whatever contract that yields you more money, but you, you know, you have to be an adult about it. You have to know that that means that you are committed to technically play for that team for 11 years. These are the things that we have to negotiate as in weird markets like this, you know, a market that is weird and dysfunctional because of ownership behavior, of course. Like, I don't think that any player would sit here and say, does it make the most sense for me to commit 10 years 
not knowing where I'm going to be 10 years from now, health-wise, family-wise, lifestyle-wise, desire to even play this game anymore-wise, but this is the only way that I can get this amount of money guaranteed to me. No, it doesn't make, doesn't make sense. But the only other option is going year over year and not making any of that money if you actually get hurt. So teams know this. That, that all of that to say is that teams know this, but they also know that if they come out and they try to subtly undermine these principles, well, then there's going to be a decent subsect of people who agree with them. There's going to be people who are like, well, he only made it three years into his contract. And I'm like, that's just not how it works. You know, teams don't want player movement. Teams don't want resetting salaries every year. They would like to lock these players into set amounts of money because they can plan for that. And when it just so happens that one player here and there doesn't actually perform up to the contract because of things that were out of his control, which is all written into that contract, then they want to cry poor. Then they want to act like they can't, they shouldn't have to hold up their end of the deal. It's nonsense. It's, it's total nonsense. It's bad faith. And it's honestly, I realize that a lot of this happens because of the learners and because of how they handle their organization and how unaccommodating it seems that they are in, in in certain scenarios. But like, this is just like professional mismanagement on, on a level that to me indicates organizational disarray. And I know that Mike Rizzo is like beloved by other people within the game and, and seemingly liked by players and agents and whatnot. But I, everything around that organization has just kind of had like a, a mild stink to it for years. And the only thing that has kind of covered up that malodorous scent has been the fact that they did win the 2019 World Series when the league and a lot of other fans really needed them to do it, to be the Astros in the midst of their cheating scandal. And I just think that they are just using that to just... I, I think that they are using that as like a flak jacket. And I, I feel like that goodwill frankly ran out a while ago and as an organization i think they're still trying to get away with that yeah there's nothing more to it i mean i i appreciate you pointing out the sort of insidious nature of this and it's all and it's important to realize that like your team's owner would do this too if they could like if it if it meant a big enough check for them they'd get it done if that if it meant being able to save a little bit of face at the next you know, board members meeting, they would they would do it. I think if you gave the Wilpons truth serum, what was the proudest thing that they were? What single decision were you most proud of as an owner of the New York Mets? They would say, ensuring the David Wright contract. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not getting to the 2015 World Series, not building good teams in the mid-2000s, not, not the Subway Series, not City Fields, you know, Mm-mm. not, I don't know, anything that they did in their tenure on your honoring Mets of Mets players of the past, retiring Mets, Mets players, numbers, hiring good managers, hiring good GMs on the rare occasion that they actually did that. <laughs> they would not say any of that. They would say no. ensuring the David Wright contract so that we didn't have to pay a single penny. This one bet we hedged. <laughs> and I think that that's probably true of most owners. Yeah. Except Steve Cohen. He's perfect. Steve, <laughs> please hire us as consultants. For your baseball team. Uh, anything else to say about Strasburg? No, I just hope the Nationals end up doing him justice. I feel like this will get 
ironed out. It doesn't feel like the kind of thing you want to linger into next spring training. Like that's just a bad look for everyone involved except for Steven Strasburg. We look forward to seeing it. I mean, we haven't really been focused on that part of the learner statement. We look forward to seeing him in spring training. It's one of the more unhinged things I've heard. Yeah, of absolutely. Say. And yeah. we've made given that career. he has more or less not pitched for the last three years. Like it's uh, unreal. He had thoracic outlet syndrome surgery at the end of 2021, I think, and he hasn't he hasn't pitched at all since then. And um, I look forward to seeing you in spring training. Is so disrespectful, especially yeah. after. All of the quotes about how he has like nerve damage and pain in his day to day life, right? And like can't lift his kid, like it's sick. What I mean, we've made a get him back. This is not actually our career, so I can't say that we've made a career out of chronicling wild owner statements and 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 takes. But we kind of have. So I feel credible in saying that that is one of the more egregious things I've heard an owner say in our time doing this podcast. That is wild. Uh, Okay, let's move along. A Evan Drellick, friend of the show in The Athletic, uh, wrote an article about the lawsuits um, from MLB's expulsion of two minor league teams. Um, The news on that front is that they can go to trial, these lawsuits. A pair of minor league teams that lost their affiliation with Major League Baseball deserve a jury trial, a judge in New York State's highest civil court ruled on Wednesday. The order was a blow to MLB, which had sought to dismiss the cases entirely. The Tri-City Valley Cats... And the Norwich Sea Unicorns, love minor league baseball. It's the best thing ever. It's amazing. Sued the league in separate cases. Both teams had lost their affiliation before the 2021 season when MLB cut 40 teams from its minor league system. Combined, the two minor league teams are seeking damages north of $30 million. I'm going to give a couple of the legal details from the case without delving too far into it because we're not lawyers. Uh, despite the fact that we do talk a lot about the law (laughs) and finance on this podcast. Um, The jury would decide whether MLB, uh, the Tigers, and the Astros, who are the parent clubs for those two minor league teams, are liable for what's known as tortious interference. Um, I hate interference, but especially when it's tortious. I'm like, come on, man. That's just adding insult to injury. Tortious interference is when I interrupt you in the middle of a great take that you're having. That's tortious <laughs> interference. Uh, They're ruling as to, as to whether MLB interfered with the rights of the minor league teams under uh, the National Association Agreement, which is the agreement that the that Major League Baseball has with the group of minor league clubs. It was 160 and now it's 120. So basically, right. MLB meddled with this agreement without having the legal right to do it and deprived these teams of the value that comes with being affiliated with a Major League Baseball team right. after they had entered into a contract that they claimed that they, they would fulfill their end of the bargain of. Are you hearing a theme here? I am hearing a theme here. Yeah, that um, National Association Agreement basically prohibits... It, it's a contract between the minor league teams, right? Saying, we are a unit, we act together, and we're not going to negotiate individually on our own with, say an organization like Major League Baseball to come up with some other plans, right? Which is what happened here, right? That Major League Baseball went to each of the teams and said, do you want to join our our new and improved minor leagues? And I imagine most, if not all teams said, yes, let's do it and get on board. And then Major League Baseball went back to some and said, actually, we miscounted the the chairs that we have available for you. <laughs> Which you can't really do. <laughs> Which you can't <laughs> do, exactly. So, I mean... It, it feels like Major League Baseball effectively saying, like, okay, what are you going to do? Sue us? Yes. It's, 
like that feels like the honest approach, right? Is them being I mean, like, we have faith kind of in the ju- approach, right? Exactly. We have faith in the legal system to protect our interests. I think they have faith in their own lobbyists to convince the legal system to protect their interests. I, they have this antitrust exemption, which allows them to act unilaterally in their business practices for, I, I don't know, like federal matters. But you know how the law works. You know, that's why this isn't a New York. I do. You, <laughs> Very familiar you, with it. You're barred. Please tell us. <laughs> Please tell us more about the New York State Legislature. Um, the way that the way that this plays out is that sometimes you know local things that happen on a state level, MLB gets sued over them because even though they have this antitrust exemption from the federal government and federal laws, and they don't have to follow like you know the United States labor laws, that so they don't have to follow any of those. Um, They're mostly suggestions anyway. <laughs> it's explicit exemptions to not follow them. <laughs> They're suggested by <laughs> the House of Representatives and the Senate to not follow them, actually. Yeah, pretty much. We suggest that you don't follow them and we give you the explicit permission not to. Um, well done, everybody. Great country we have here. But like, uh, there was a lawsuit in California that they were violating um, California state labor law. And you know this is going to court in New York, so they have to follow the laws of the states that they do business in, for the most part. And uh, MLB basically doesn't believe that they have to do that. Morgan Sword, MLB's executive vice president of baseball operations, also a guy who is very present in the collective bargaining agreement, collective bargaining and negotiations. Um, he's like Rob's right-hand man, basically, at Major League Baseball. Told the court in an affidavit that publicly disclosing the documents for this lawsuit quote, would reveal competitively sensitive details of defendants' negotiation strategies, commercial interests, current business and financial arrangements, and the manner in which they approach and engage in commercial relationships. That is legalese for we would look really bad if we had to turn over the documents Mm -hmm. with regard to this specific action that we took to cut 40 teams out of minor league baseball. We would look bad to the people who care, to fans, to, to sponsors, to advertisers, to banks. And maybe maybe to the two teams who are suing us. <laughs> to the two teams. I mean, I think they already know everything. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, it kind of only makes me want to see them more, huh? So funny. I love this kind of legal defense. We would look really bad if we had to defend ourselves in court. That yeah. is, uh, that. I mean, that's like a core tenet of um, the American legal system, but it's awesome. It is sick that that stuck around. Um, the judge didn't find that compelling writing, quote, in light of the significant public interest in this case and the presumption of transparency in judicial process proceedings, the court does not find the required good cause to seal any of the documents at issue. Really funny. Really good stuff. So there's one more little tidbit in this in this news story that I wanted to bring up. Um, Jim Quinn is one of the litigators on this lawsuit. Jim Quinn, longtime listeners of the show, will remember he joined us right here to talk about None other than this lawsuit. Yeah, this lawsuit, MLB's antitrust exemption, Um, because he has not just one lawsuit against Major League Baseball; he's got two lawsuits, and one is about whether Major League Baseball violated this NAA and is owed penalties to these teams that I think is in the range of thirty million dollars, and the other one casts a bit of a wider net and takes aim directly at that antitrust exemption. Jim talked about. Uh, that case with us. That lawsuit also has to do with the contraction of the minor leagues, although he's representing a couple more teams in it. And basically at every step of the way, the courts have stonewalled him and said, 
no, there's an antitrust exemption. They can do whatever they want, which is usually how these things go. But there's uh, there's one more court to go left. <laughs> but there's one more court left to go through. You want to know what that one is, Bobby? <laughs> That's the Supreme Court. I think I've heard about them. He said, I think there's a reasonable chance that the Supreme Court will take the case. And if they do, it's a signal they're going to get rid of the so-called baseball antitrust exemption. The funniest day on this podcast is coming. It's Mm -hmm. either that the Supreme Court takes away the antitrust exemption and we get to talk about the press conference that Rob Manfred has to do afterwards. Yeah. Or it's that the Supreme Court takes the case just to reinforce the antitrust exemption one more time. And then it is still the funniest podcast we've ever done, but it is just darkly funny. <laughs> like, you'd, Either have, way, you'd have to hand it to them if they were like, <laughs> you're really going to take our fourth case on the antitrust exemption. And we're just going to be like, still believe in it, still buy it. Good choice. <laughs> well, not if we have anything to say about it. That's why we're working on taking the Patreon money, um, purchasing some private jets. Mm-hmm. purchasing well we already um, have one for some, us we always well we already have one for us yeah but again like you said that's ours um but i do hear that clarence thomas is in need, in need of some new friends so if anyone knows how to fish you're invited i think see i feel like clarence is already bought you know we can't compete with these donors mm. so i think we gotta go straight to amy coney barrett a person that I definitely remembered was on the Supreme Court when we were in DC last weekend. And we definitely were definitely has convictions. For we were sure. looking at the paintings of the <laughs> <laughs> We're in the National Portrait Gallery and there's the painting. There's a painting, semi-famous, in the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, DC, of uh four of the women who have served on the Supreme Court. And since then there have been multiple female appointees to the Supreme Court. And we were like, oh, it almost looks like they left space for future women to be added in. And we were talking about them, and you were, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, they got a couple more to go." And you were like, "Yeah, Amy Coney Barrett." And I was like, "Who is that?" Really <laughs> came as quickly, really went as quickly as she came, huh? She did. You know, I think she's still around. We're just it's not still holding it down. Much. I think she's. I don't. I don't think she's doing great work for. Yeah, American arguably a people. little more nefarious. I have a question. Um, do you listen to the podcast Trillbillies? Uh, on occasion, they're they're very funny. Yeah. Excellent podcast for listeners of this show. They they talk about in a similar manner to us. Like everything is funny, nothing is good, everything is bad. Yeah. But like we're going to crack some jokes about it and care about labor along the way. They talk about a wider net of topics than just baseball. Of course, one of their recurring bits is called the penultimate court. Have you heard them do this before? <laughs> I have. Yeah, what's <laughs> <laughs> their idea for them having a court? to catch cases right before they go to the Supreme Court to take the load off of the Supreme Court, the workload <laughs> off of the Supreme Court, and they just get to decide stuff that they feel like the Supreme Court doesn't feel like hearing about. So they're right. the penultimate court. The last court in the land before the Supreme Court. <laughs> and I sort of feel like they should sort of loan that concept out to us just for baseball cases. You know, like right. we should be the penultimate court for the Supreme, like their sort of auxiliary penultimate court, APC, for just this case and we get to decide it what say you this is the antitrust case correct yeah yeah and any other baseball related case that goes to the supreme court should there be oh, any oh others? we're taking we're taking all of them okay i just feel like like the penultimate course is, court is going to get overrun at some point and we got to be the auxiliary penultimate court and then it, if, it, if there are too many baseball cases heading to the supreme court then we'll have to have a second auxiliary penultimate court the sapc on the one hand, I was I was thinking that 
sending a lot of baseball uh, cases to the Supreme Court does um, feels like maybe they could be using their time better. On the other hand, I don't exactly love what they've been doing with their time in the last few years. So maybe the strategy is to actually send more cases to the Supreme Court. You know how like... <laughs> You know how conservatives have like been building this infrastructure over the last few years of like let's just like pull cases out of nowhere. Maybe this is I our I have opening. heard about that. Yeah. The Federalist Society? Uh-huh. What do you think What do you think Oliver Stone thinks about the Federalist Society? I don't, I don't I don't know that he does. I think he definitely does. He has apparently one of the more deranged autobiographies ever written, not just not just Hollywood autobiographies, just autobiographies in general. It's right. like 500 pages. Nobody really thought it was going to be like this, but um, when he actually put it out and people started reading it, it's like 500 pages and it just gets him up to the point right before he starts making Platoon, which was like the movie Incredible. that made him <laughs> What a flex. He's like putting it out like <laughs> in chapters. Oh, epic. It's like a Dickens novel where they used to release one chapter per week in the newspaper <laughs> and then bind it all together. We should, we should go back to that, you know? I so agree. I said it's daunting to have all these books. All these books behind me that you see right now. Oh my God. If I just got like I haven't read all portions them. of it delivered to me on a weekly basis, it encouraged me to read more books. As if you can't just read one chapter every night and then just go to bed. Like that's not it's an too option. much. It's so many pages to hold, you know? It is a lot of it's intimidating. Daunting, yeah. you could say. Daunting. Just like the caseload for the Supreme Court, which is why we need the penultimate court and why we need the auxiliary auxiliary, auxiliary penultimate court for baseball, comma, for baseball. Okay, we'll keep, we'll keep workshopping the name. Nope. Not no, doing it if it's not named that. The that's, APC, comma, FB. It is jargony and overly long, which means that is absolutely what the name is going to be from here on out. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Alex. Get ready to hear the takes. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We could take, we could hear cases about uh, the Nevada state legislature budget too, if you want. If someone is willing to sue John Fisher, Dave Cavill, the different people who may or may not have taken bribes to vote yes on the eighth stadium bill, may or may not, may or may not, they might not have taken the bribes. They might not <laughs> have accepted money from lobbyists. They may, they may not have. Right. They may have just wanted to vote no until suddenly the vote came along and then they wanted to vote yes to give them a billion dollars. Like that is Who among option. us has not made a game time decision? Exactly. We could hear a case about that someday at the APC, PC. comma FB. Right. Um, can you fill me in on the details of this? Apparently, <laughs> the Nevada teachers would like uh, a vote on the stadium budget bill. Right? A new vote? A second vote? Basically, right. So, so they called the Nevada legislature, called this special... So many like shush legislature called a special show. <laughs> you can you know, leave that part in. <laughs> right. So uh this past June, the Nevada legislature called a special session. <laughs> oh, special session. Special session. Special session. You gotta special work on session. that before we see, we try our first case. <laughs> <laughs> Back in June, the Nevada legislature. Take your time. Wait, slow, slow. Called a special session. Woo! We did it, Joe. On the the basically the financing for the proposed a stadium on the Las Vegas Strip. 
It was passed by the governor. Um, but there are some groups that are not too happy about half a billion dollars going to fund an actual billionaire's like pet project. I, I would argue all the groups are not happy about that. Right. I can't think I of any have not groups seen a group that, that are is happy. pro this, except the Nevada State Legislature. Somehow. And the MLB Commissioner's Office. Can't forget that. Right, of course. One of those groups is Nevada Teachers. The Nevada State Education Association has been really raising a stink over the last few months about this. Nevada is very heavily underfunded in their public school system. There's crowding in classrooms. There's shortages of teachers. And their argument is, hey, well, if you have all this money floating around for a baseball stadium, why would you not give it to our schools instead? And so the Nevada State Educators Association has created this group called Schools Over Stadiums, which they have been kind of rallying behind in the last couple of months. This past week, they initiated a referendum petition. So they're petitioning to get a referendum onto the ballot that would allow Nevada residents to vote on whether or not to allow tax revenues to pay back the bonds that were issued to pay for this stadium, right? So, so municipalities, county, states will issue bonds to raise capital for building a stadium. Investors will buy those bonds with the understanding that they're going to get some interest from that and the bond will be paid back eventually. And then after the construction is complete, the state will use the taxes generated from the project to pay back the bonds, pay back the investors, right? Are you with me still? Um, regrettably, I, <laughs> I just understood it. everything you said. I, okay. That's just a true, true indictment of how I've spent the last five years of my life that I it still is, understand what complete. you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> Basically, schools over stadiums is trying to make these bonds unattractive to potential investors, right? So they're not trying to gut the whole bill because it sounds like they don't think that would be very successful. Past attempts at that sort of thing have failed. And so they're saying, well, let's target the money specifically. Instead of hamstringing the whole bill, we just want to say, hey, these bonds that you're trying to issue, no one's going to want them. No one's going to buy the bonds, which means you're not going to be able to secure the funding that you need to create this stadium. Right. You're not going to let the vultures come in, the, the investment banks come in and get their little piece of this pie. Which, as we know, nothing happens in the world without Goldman Sachs. <laughs> Pretty much coming to yeah. the meeting. Who was it? Was it a? Uh, was it Goldman that, that got in on their investment? I don't know. I just use them as a shorthand for whoever. No, I think it was like them or Morgan Stanley or something. Mm, who were, Merrill Lynch. Who were on board. Merrill Lynch, right? They're all the same. Why do Morgan. they all have two names? I think it's because it's a guy's name or like two guys' names. Are you more of a Goldman or a Sachs? I'm more of a Stanley, you know. <laughs> No, you're not telling me that a man's name was Goldman Sachs, right? I think it was two men's names. Two, two, okay, two names. All right. That makes a little more sense. But like, I don't Come know. Come here, Goldman. One. Come here. <laughs> it's dinner time, Goldman. Uh, I don't know if this will work. I don't know anything about this sort of state politics, but it feels like it's worth a try. So this would be like a prop that, that the voters would vote on on election day or something. Correct. Basically saying, do you want to allow the sale of bonds to fund stadium projects 
I want to say, first of all, I'm going to allow some little space here for a round of applause for how well you explained that, honestly. I think you did a great job. (laughs) Listeners at home, please clap. (laughs) To borrow a phrase from Jeb Bush, our beloved politician, Jeb. Um, Second of all, this seems like a very high wire act, but a really creative and like really cool way of, of thinking about this. Like if you are not going to have the option to have your voice heard in the democratic process because the people who you elected to vote for you in the state legislature voted against your interests and against what everybody clearly did not want. They just signed off on it anyway because they're going to, I don't know, someone's going to contribute to their re-election campaign or something. Um, Finding a way into the democratic process through organizing for things that actually matter is one of the last worthwhile things you you can do in the world and in politics. I, I, honestly, though, because like I think that it specifically being teachers and it specifically being tied to public education is really interesting, especially in a state like Nevada, where it's actually a a, a very rural state with like a couple main cities that um, hold a lot of like the the wealth and and the decision making power for the entire state just by nature of of being the center for economy, which is how we organize our political structures in this country. And just because my partner works in education and has worked with school districts in Nevada, I know how strained the public public education system is there, like a lot of rural states in this country, just because it is hard to organize public education when it is not a priority for states. And also, the geography of a state is not working for you. It's working against you. When a population is spread out, it can be hard to have public school because it costs money to get everybody in the same place every day and to to use those resources wisely and actually educate people. So I think coming from a public sector that is adversely affected by mismanagement of funds and applying pressure to a sector that doesn't need the money, I think is earnestly really cool. And I know, you know, prop bills in this country are fraught because it's usually like whoever puts the most money into it wins it. And I I don't, I don't know for certain, but I don't think that the teachers are going to be able to outspend Major League Baseball and John Fisher, but I I suppose we'll see. Um, Every once in a while, there is a prop that goes the way that actually helps people, so... Yeah, well, and I think the the bigger question is whether or not it even makes it to the ballot, right? Because it being on the ballot is like worst case scenario for the A's, right? Letting voters actually have a say in this project. That's 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 worst case scenario for them. So I think they have a couple weeks to basically respond to this petition. I don't know how that's going to go. So I won't sit here and speculate, but something tells me they're going to fight really hard to keep this from even appearing there before they have to then do a millions of dollars worth ad blitz to convince Nevadans that actually this handout is good for you. I also, before we, before we get off of this topic and wrap up this episode, I, I want to say like just how right they are, you know, like how, <laughs> how, how nuts it is that to, to look around your community and see things drastically underfunded and just be told for decades that it can't be fixed because education is a black hole or mail is a black hole or right. hospitals or it's going to bring tourism is a black Bobby, hole it's going to bring tourism yes but we can we can find 500 million dollars to 
to ambiently bring new tourists to the state. Like that is such a slap in the face. And I, I am, I just, I have a lot of admiration for people who get slapped in the face by people in power and then choose to like try to kneecap them. I think that that is a cool thing to do. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. We'll, we'll obviously follow this story as it, um, unfolds. And, and like you said, I think the A's and major league baseball will be honing their lobbying death ray on this specific thing as they have, you know, with this whole storyline over the last year or so they've put a lot of resources, probably more resources than the alleged $100 million that they spent to try to keep the ace in, in Oakland to try to build a new stadium there. Yeah. They probably actually <laughs> spent more than that to try to move them to Nevada, but that's neither here nor there. Has John Fisher thought about taking a page out of our good friend, John Angelos's book and just build the schools himself. <laughs> Uh, you you joke, but I I actually think that John Fisher, if I'm not mistaken, someone pointed this out to us recently. That yeah. John Fisher is like a huge, huge, huge investor in charter schools. Yes, he is. Which is maybe not the least surprising thing that I've ever learned about a, an MLB owner, but uh, among them, you know, right. that's a given ten out of ten what, uh, on the least surprising scale. Also, just given what you know about Fisher and like you know, oh. Bay Area family who like to give back and you know I, it it does feel right up the kind of like Silicon Valley it does feel right up their alley that sort of Silicon Valley like new money way of thinking about education like hey there's an inefficiency and we can fix it sorry no no, no you can't fix it you can disrupt it that's uh, right yeah 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 get that through your head yeah we're not fixing it John Fisher said, I'm not interested in reform. I'm interested in in revolution, baby. We don't <laughs> I do think John Fisher applies that lens to all of the all of the <laughs> political issues in the world. <laughs> no reform, all about revolution. By any any means necessary. Um from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. Okay. He doesn't have the ability to build a stadium. He has the right. need to build he a has stadium. The need for it. <laughs> He's read marks. He's read angles. <laughs> okay, I think that's. I think that might be time to wrap it up. <laughs> I think so. Before we keep the bit going of of John Fisher, uh, Marxist legend. Uh, last week on the podcast, we mentioned that we were going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be recording our three hundredth episode and doing a special idea for it, where we needed people to submit questions. I I I did mention at the end of that podcast that. We need the people to submit those questions within the next couple of days because we would be recording it in advance due to your contraction of COVID-19. We did not record that podcast. So people had extra time. People yeah. have extra time to submit their questions. So uh, that link is still going to be in the description uh, this week. So if you want to get your questions in, you're going to have to do it under the wire. I Alex and I still don't know exactly when we're, when we're going to record it. So I can't give you a cutoff time. But just know that this is the final call for questions. Yes or no questions. Short answer questions. They need to be yes, no, or very short answer. That is all I'm going to say about this idea because I truly want people to experience it unadulterated, uninterrupted. It's a high concept episode. You've done a, a lot of work uh, getting us to this point. <laughs> it's a high concept. I can't <laughs> wait for people to see what the actual episode is and What's to a high concept think about is? your description of it as being high concept <laughs> that's really funny to me we're going to be trying to figure out cold fusion while answering your questions that's basically it yeah pretty much <laughs> um 
but before we duck out of here, Bobby, there's one more thing that that just came across my timeline that I wanted to bring up to you. Oh, okay. Manfred's uh, resigning. Yeah. Uh huh. That's the next emergency pod we do. I accidentally yesterday when I was making my latte, the um, I was trying to do like some latte art on the top of it, which I know that you can do Sick. a little bit because right. you know you used to punch that time card at Starbucks. Yeah, so, I was I was slinging Joe's. <laughs> you're a latte artist, <laughs> and I was trying to do just one of the like basic little leaves and stuff, and I I just can't do it. And the um, artwork ended up looking like the MLB logo a little bit. Oh, and I thought for a brief second, should I like preserve, freeze dry this latte and then sell it on eBay? Kind of like yeah. the woman who like sold the Jesus toast for like <laughs> a million toast, dollars. Exactly. <laughs> um, similar market for those products. Right? <laughs> Well, I don't know. Baseball podcaster accidentally makes MLB logo. What does that say? That's supernatural. That's yeah. It's a divine force what does that say about you? If we're being honest, I think it says that I support Rob. Yeah, shameless shilling for Rob Manfred going on in my That's apartment. Really, un- really unfortunate. Quarantining, stuff. trying to do latte art. I think the takeaway from this is that you just have to teach me how to do it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay, great. I, I that was a tangent, but <laughs> sorry to interrupt. <laughs> just needed to share that with everybody listening. I just needed to share with everyone listening that um, you, you, you may remember that the city of Anaheim and uh, its former mayor, Harry Sidhu, uh, oh, yeah. uh, got in a bit of trouble for uh, a little, little corruption, a little corruption light. Racketeering. Right. Around uh, trying to basically give the angels a, um, a sweetheart deal on Angel Stadium. And the parking lot surrounding it. And the, and, the, and the real estate surrounding it. So the FBI went to uh, Anaheim City executives the other day and said, hey, we have a copy of this email um, proving the corruption between, between you guys, basically. Can you provide your own copy? And an Anaheim City executive said, that one seems to have escaped us, actually. With the, that, that email that, is, that may be at the center of, of, of your corruption investigation we do not know where it is. Oh, that's awesome. That's the old Wolf of Wall Street defense. Yeah, that's the old Hillary, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not making the last two minutes of this podcast about Hillary's emails. <laughs> but her emails. <laughs> I'm just, I just want Anaheim to keep doing Anaheim. That's like, that's all. They're such a gift to, to us, I think. Yeah, but just like low stakes business-oriented corruption. Right, low-level corruption charges. Yeah, yeah. Like, we don't have enough of that anymore. I know. There's a real market inefficiency now. Someone needs to come back and re-disrupt, you know? Bring back organized crime. Those wheels don't grease themselves, am I right? <laughs> wheels, palms, you know? Yeah. Just everything needs to be greased. <laughs> uh-huh. Bobby Wagner, everything needs to be greased. It does, you know? Yeah. The levers of democracy need to be greased. I learned that in the film today. Uh-huh. Just got to keep this society going, you know? Defense contracting, $100 billion a year industry. Yeah. And that Kevin was in the 1960s. Kevin before he goes out in the freezing cold. True. Grease. Real throwback. Google Kevin Kiermeyer Vaseline <laughs> for more on that. Thank you to everybody for listening to this week's episode of Tipping Pitches. I look forward to episode 300 next week whenever it may be <laughs> I look forward to you hearing what Alex described as a high concept episode we're going to put that on the movie poster that we make for this podcast episode 
we will be back in one week. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!